This is hell. First, Alex, what was that music? That was a uh, Telstar by the Tornadoes. Oh. I was looking up a uh, Joe Meek's discography last night. Uh, he killed himself and his landlady. <laughs> landlady first. A pretty depressing read over there on Wikipedia. <laughs> Live from the United States and beyond, where capitalism is always the virus, this is hell. Many guests on our show have shared their hope for an alternative to the climate change-causing, pandemic-inducing system within which we live today. They dream of an alternative way of living and having a different relationship with nature that is not as exploitative as our current commodified relationship with all life, human and non-human alike. If only there was a movement that did not respect borders and did not separate participants with the walls of nationalism and instead brought people together from all parts of the world who know that another world is possible, even if that world is still in their imagination of what a brighter future for everyone might be. Imagine a movement of hundreds of millions of people across over a hundred nations, all with the same goal of putting people before profits, who have already come up with an alternative to capitalism. Well, what if that alternative already exists and has been thriving for decades as it challenges the deadly polluters and extractive industries that are not only destroying the environment, but are also a threat to all of society as well? On today's show, we will be learning all about an alternative that has been brewing in Brazil for over 30 years and has recently taken to the streets following deadly criminal mining accidents and an inadequate government response to coronavirus. And it all starts with water sovereignty. Our guest today is sociologist Caitlin Schroering, who wrote the Roar magazine article Inside the Struggle for Water Sovereignty in Brazil. Brazil's movement of people affected by dams has been fighting for decades against the privatization of water and for popular control over natural resources. Caitlin has 16 years of experience in community, political, environmental, and labor organizing, as well as a background in Latin American studies. Caitlin will be starting a position as a postdoctoral associate at the University of Pittsburgh this fall. Her research coalesces around multiple areas of social inquiry, including environmental sociology, resource conflicts, the human right to water, and transnational social movements using feminist and decolonial methodologies. Her primary line of research is based on extensive fieldwork with two movements fighting against water privatization, one in Brazil and one in the United States. Also on today's show, we will have the rest of your answers to this week's question from hell. We'll share with you what's happening on our Patreon podcast tomorrow, Friday at 10 a.m. Chicago time at patreon.com slash this is hell. We'll tell you what's happening on This Is Hell next week. And of course, we'll have a moment of truth with Jeff Dorchin. During this week's moment, Jeff takes us to inspect the foundation of the House of Bad Opinions. Producing is Alex Jerry. Alex, how's your week gone so far? I saw a four-foot rat snake the other day. What do you mean a rat snake? The name of the type of snake is called a rat snake. Uh, okay. I was hoping it wasn't a rat that had eaten a snake and no. it become one <laughs> entirely horrible thing. Where did you see this? My four front foot step. Rat? No kidding. <laughs> yeah. I mean, God bless all creatures, great and small, but damn, this is not a great thing to see on your front step uh, when you're right about to step on it. How did you identify it as a rat snake? I'm just kind of guessing. <laughs> okay. I yeah. might send I might send a Twitter message to listener Robert to see if he could tell me, but uh, we looked it up. Uh, this is a scary damn thing. It's a big boy. You know, my sister has a 
PhD in herpetology. So you might want to send a picture to her. Oh, I thought she was a bug expert. She's got a PhD in that too, my friend. Damn. Bugs and snakes. Yes, my sister is such a girly girl. My week would not have been a week if we were not doing daily one-hour shows, and we're still doing the show live on Saturday mornings for four straight hours. Let me explain real quick. After doing the show live for four hours every Saturday morning at 9 a.m., on Chicago's Sound Experiment, WNUR 89.3 FM, in January of last year, 2020, just before the pandemic, we started doing the show live daily for one hour, Monday through Thursday at 10 a.m. at thisishell.com, with a Patreon podcast on Fridays at patreon.com slash thisishell at the same time, 10 a.m. We then air those episodes during our world broadcast premiere Saturday mornings on WNUR. And if we were still doing live four-hour shows on Saturday mornings, instead of daily one-hour shows from here in our studio above Carrie's Lounge in Chicago's West Ridge neighborhood, we would not be doing any shows this week at all as I have been suffering from my recurring stomach ailment an ailment that allows me to sit down and do a show for an hour, maybe a little bit more, but four consecutive hours would have been an impossibility this week. Without the studio, we also would not have been able to do any of the shows we did while WNUR was locked down due to the pandemic. So again, thanks to Carrie's Lounge proprietor, Pete Valavanis, for giving us access to a space so we can keep giving you as much hell as we possibly can, even when there's a viral pandemic on the loose and when my stomach is in knots. But more important than any of that, Alex, please remind us, what's this week's question from hell for our listening audience? This week's question from hell is, what's leaking out of your lab? What's leaking out of your lab? (laughs) After that stomach discussion, I don't want to tell you. The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell merchandise you want. You can check out all of our merchandise right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support, where you will see all the ways you can contribute to completely listener-supported This Is Hell. Remember, without you, we got nothing. So thanks to all of you for your support. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. You can direct message it to us via Twitter at thisishellradio. You can email it to us at alex at thisishell.com or chuck at thisishell.com, but we must have your answer by the end of today's show when we are announcing this week's winner following Jeff Dorchin and the moment of truth. Alex will have more of your answers to this week's question from hell. Following our guest again, this week's question is, what's leaking out of your lab? What's leaking out of your lab? Listener Adam B. sent us an email to chuck at thisishell.com following our interview Tuesday with Max Isle on his book, A People's Green New Deal. Adam writes, after hearing today's Red Deal shout-out, I'll push it again for a potential show. I'd say get Nick Estes or whoever he recommends to be on to discuss the Red Deal. Adam is referring to the Red Deal, which is an indigenous action to save the Earth, as opposed to the Green New Deal, which is a plan to transition from fossil fuels to non-CO2-emitting sources to mitigate, mitigate the worst aspect of climate change. And yes, Adam Nick Estes is on our list and has been for a couple of years, but we've yet to been able to pin him down for an interview date and time. It's a bit more difficult scheduling for our show because we do the interviews live at 10 a.m. Chicago time, and that's not necessarily convenient for everyone. So our commitment to being live can at times be a hindrance to booking guests. But 
it, we're a lot more flexible now because we're doing the show Monday through Thursday instead of just Saturday mornings. That really eliminated the possibility of us having a lot of guests on because people just don't want to work on the weekend. But Adam didn't only email us. Adam also emailed Max Isle, and he CC'd us on the email he sent to Max. Adam writes to Max, thanks for going on This Is Hell. I'm a rabid listener. Question for you, who do you think are some of the savviest most effective or most potentially effective climate organizations out there right now. I'm looking to join and or start something, preferably join hella easier. None of the big groups I'm aware of seem like quite what I'm looking for. Example one, 350.org. They seem to lack the ambition of, say, a People's Green New Deal and seem to lack effective strategy for what ambition they do have. Example two, Extinction Rebellion. There's more accessible uh, frames than extinction, and their major direct actions to date that I'm aware of don't seem to reflect a solid dialectical materialist understanding of power in imperial capitalist political economy. Example three, the Sunrise Movement. They have some good rhetoric on intersectionality, but they seem to have a bourgeoisie core that comes with neutered militancy and with alienation from peasants, proletarians, and lumpen proletarians. And example four, School Strike for Climate. I admire Greta at 10 out of 10, but they seem to understand power nearly as poorly as Extinction Rebellion and are nearly as alienated from the masses as Sunrise. Granted, I realize I'm saying all this and all these outfits have done way more than me. There's some smaller groups with climate analyses, proposals, and tactics that to the extent I understand them from the outside, I quite like, like, for instance, the Party for Socialism and Liberation and the Red Nation. My concern with these when it comes to effective climate activism is that they're not especially inclusive of all the people who strongly desire decisive state and international intervention on this or people amenable to it, but who aren't yet radical leftists. Thoughts? Adam. Who knows if Max will ever reply to Adam's question, but we would like to hear your reply, listening audience. What climate organization would you suggest Adam look into and possibly join? Again, please keep in mind, Adam does realize he might be overly critical of the groups or that his analysis might be off. He mentioned that and that he admits that they have done far more than he has. So send us your suggestions on what climate group Adam should join to chuck at thisishell.com. And if you do, we will not only read your suggestions on air, but we'll forward them to Adam and we'll see what happens. Coming up, how water sovereignty is driving a mass social environmental movement in Brazil. We'll also tell you what's happening on Patreon during our Friday Patreon podcast tomorrow. And we will have Jeff Dorch in the Moment of Truth during this week's moment. Jeff takes us to inspect the foundation of the House of Bad Opinions. Alex will have more of your answers to this week's question from hell. What's leaking out of your lab? The person with our favorite answer gets whatever piece of This Is Hell merchandise they want. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page. Tweet it to us. Email it to us. But we have to have your answer by the end of today's show. Live from late capitalism, where property has more rights than people. This is hell. Brazilians and people in over 100 nations, some 300 million strong, are now challenging the idea of putting profits before people after several deadly acts of criminal negligence by extractive industries. The environmental devastation has destroyed livelihoods and made parts of Brazil unlivable. And when life becomes unlivable, alternative ways of living are sought. And in Brazil, they may have already found them. 
here to tell us about the movement for water sovereignty in Brazil and how that may make another world possible. Sociologist Caitlin Schroering wrote the Aurora Magazine article Inside the Struggle for Water Sovereignty in Brazil, Brazil's movement of people affected by dams has been fighting for decades against the privatization of water and for popular control over natural resources. Welcome to This Is Hell. Caitlin? Hi, yes. Thank you so much. Happy to to be on with you today. Thank you very much. You know, in uh, part of your uh, bio at the University of Pittsburgh page, it says that uh, your primary line of research is based on extensive field work with two movements fighting against water privatization, one in Brazil and one in the United States. We're going to be talking about the one in Brazil, but what is the one in the United States that you've done field work with? Well, uh, yes, it's... uh where my current home is of, of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, I've been involved um, in a campaign coalition here um, that's called Our Water Campaign. And what? And are they working on what? Uh, what's the water that you're focusing on? Is it the Monongahela, the Allegheny, and the Ohio? What's the water that you're focusing on? Well, I mean, in in, in a very short summary, the focus here has actually been more um, around fighting for public safe and uh, affordable water, so like municipal drinking water. Um, there was a, a lead, uh, lead in the water crisis that broke uh, back in 2016, and, and part, of, part of that problem was caused from you know, what I would call a failed public-private partnership with a, with a water corporation, uh, Veolia. And so um, a lot of the, the effort has been on pushing to keep the water public, to not enter into another public-private partnership, and to hold public authorities accountable for, for cleaning up the water. So in some ways, uh, quite a different struggle from that um, in Brazil, but in other ways very similar in that at the core it's a fight about saying no corporations um, and greed shouldn't be directing um, and controlling our water, that water is, should be a commons, that water should be a human right, and that every, every being on this planet, um, you know, should have safe water, um, and that that shouldn't be dictated by corporate power. These public-private partnerships that you are fighting in Pittsburgh, that's not, I know, quite what is happening in Brazil, but those public-private partnerships, it always seems to be dominated by the private uh, partner within that partnership. Uh, the public partner seems to always just be left aside. How would you describe that relationship when it comes to Brazil? Are the, are the extractive industries, are they in a public-private partnership, or is the relationship different from what we see here in the United States? Yeah, that's a great question. So I think that I would, I would say it's both different and the same. So, for example, actually even as there has has been and is, I would argue, um, and this has been well well documented, kind of a trend towards what we could call remunicipalization of, of water globally, right? So that is that water, like municipal drinking water and sanitation that has been privatized to turn it back into publicly controlled um, authorities. There's been a move for that globally. At the same time, we do see in some places, and including in Brazil right now, especially with more or you know right right wing governments, um, push to for legislation and laws that would make it easier to enter into public private partnerships and to privatize um, 
drinking water and sanitation. And that is a struggle that is currently, that, that is happening um, in Brazil. In, you know, the, the content of my article, though, which is really focused on, on Mabi's struggle and specifically focused on some of the, the horrible, what I would say, and what they call crimes that have occurred um, around, around dam places, you know, that also, though, connects to this, this problem of privatization, right? So um, Valet, which is the company that um, owns the, the dams that I, I talk about in the article that were uh, when the Brumaginho Dam collapsed, um, that took the lives of nearly 300 people, buried them alive in mud, and has you know, now a couple years later, still just devastating socio-environmental impacts. So that was a, a corporation. It's, it's um, um, iron ore corporation. So that means, you know, we're not just talking about, I think often when we think about mining, we don't realize all the pieces to that. So there's the actual iron mines and extraction of the iron ore, but there's also the railroads that need to be constructed, the highways, the dams to make all that possible and kind of this whole like energy complex and so valley was a, a state-owned company and um then it was it was privatized um and i think from from the analysis of mobby and, and many others and i i certainly concur with this that since you know it's been privatized there have been more egregious violations of human rights of environmental rights um because ultimately What's the, the bottom line of a corporation is to make money, to make profit at any cost. Um, and so I think in that sense, you know, thinking about corporate power and privatization and then kind of the devastating environmental and social impacts that come from that, there are a lot of, a lot of similarities uh, between, between struggles wherever they're occurring in the world and whether they're around um, you know, we're thinking about drinking water or we're thinking about hydro, hydropower and, and dams. Mobby is the movement of people affected by dams, in case people are curious. That's the uh, uh, what's in the title of Caitlin's writing. You were mentioning, I'm gonna, we'll get back to dams in just a second, but you mentioned remunicipalization, which people might also <laughs> see it as something called deprivatization. One of the things that we were being told when everything was being privatized by nations all over the world is that deprivatization is a very, very difficult thing to do. And it almost is being sold as something that is in near impossibility. So how difficult is it to remunicipalize utilities? Well, I think that that's a, a complicated <laughs> question. Um, what I would say, though, is that even as it is, certainly it is, it is difficult. Um, on the other hand, um, we can see and um, PSI, Public Services International, has done a lot of really excellent work um, around this. But there are really close to 2,000 cases of remunicipalization of utilities around the, around the world. Um, and so I, I definitely think it is possible. And I think um, you know, there are there is the data to show that it's possible that it is happening. And I think one of the things that has made it um, 
you know, we, why we see this reversal is that especially, so there was the wave of kind of neoliberal reforms and with that privatization of water and other resources and utilities in the 80s and 90s in particular that swept around the world. And at this point, we're seeing decades later the effects of that, that it didn't work, right? That maybe for a few years, in some cases, of privatization, uh, maybe, you know, maybe the, the cost went down. But after a few years, almost across the board, we see prices going up for services and quality going down. And so both, you know, political leaders and, and people um, – see the impact of that, feel that, and then have organized to say, hey, clearly this didn't work. We need to reclaim whatever we want to call it, remunicipalize, deprivatize, you know, reclaim our, our resources. Um, and I think that it's important to hold, I think that it's important to hold up the success stories because I think that that can give us hope um, in, in our struggles wherever they're occurring in the world to realize, yes, this is a huge fight. This is also a part of a global economic system that's very powerful, but that the people, you know, the people united um, can win. You write that in Brazil, there is an extensive network of mining companies, electric companies, and other corporate powers that construct, own, and operate dams throughout the country. But for the communities directly affected by hydro dam projects, water and energy are not uh, commodities. Brazil's movement of people affected by dams, or MABI, fights against the displacement and privatization of water, rivers, and other natural resources, and the belief that everyday people should have sovereignty and control over their own resources. So how undemocratic Democratic is control over water and rivers in Brazil, and to what extent can any lack of democracy be blamed on, I don't know, the former military dictatorship and that dictatorship's heavy influence over Brazil's politics ever since? Well, I want to preface my answer to that question by saying that obviously, you know, my answer to that is going to come from from my perspective um, and as someone who lives from the United States, who is, so to speak, in the center of the empire. Um, and so with that being said, I think it's, it's really important that I and that we in general uh, in the U.S., right, don't just fall into the narrative of, oh, well, the problem somewhere, the problem in the will is, is you know, they're, who they've elected to be leaders, right? Or Because I think that it's, again, the analysis and the focus of understanding that this is a part of a, a global capitalist, say, imperialist world system is really critical. Um, now, to maybe speak a little more directly to your question, right, um, you know, I think that I would argue that Brazil has an incredibly vibrant, popular social movement, Mobi in is one of them, but there's many others. Probably more listeners are familiar or have heard of the MST or Landless Workers Movement, um, which has millions of people engaged in that in that struggle for for agrarian reform and um, and sovereignty. And I think that for all of all of his flaws, certainly, but for example, under the Lula administration, um, you know. Social movements did make gains. Social movements were able to um, place demands upon the state 
for rights that were guaranteed in the 1988 Constitution and see some of them realized. Obviously, you know, wasn't perfect, but there there were strides made for social movements and gaining more rights, you know, in MST and being able to to gain um, gain land. Um, and then what we've seen, though, right, uh, what what many um, in Brazil and I, I can, many people in Brazil, many of the the people in Mavi, and I concur with this assessment. Well, what they call it was an institutional coup that happened um, that ousted Dilma and then had Temer and then now Bolsonaro is a, a rollback of, of rights um, and, and, and the criminalization of social movements. Um, and so certainly that is, there is state, um, state, you know, government power that is playing a role in that. But we can also look at all the connections that Bolsonaro has right, to um, big agriculture, to interest in the U.S., um, and how kind of those geopolitics um, are operating. So, again, to go back to the Brumagino collapse and ballet, I mean, a lot of their shareholders are some of the largest um, investment firms in the world that are based in the U.S. And so, again, I think we have to think about this analysis of how this isn't just about states or corrupt States. This is about a global socioeconomic system that is that is about extraction and exploitation all over the globe. And maybe that's a little more visible in some ways, right, in Brazil. But the, some of those same dynamics are also happening here in the United States. And the uh, disaster that you were just talking about happened on January 25th, 2019. The worst environmental crime in Brazil's history resulted in the loss of 272 lives in Bermadinho. You also uh, mentioned La Via Campesina, a transnational social movement representing 300 million people across five continents with over 150 member organizations committed to food sovereignty and climate justice. With a massive international social movement like La Via Campesina, why do we not know more about it? Why isn't it a household name? I mean, we, we know all about Occupy. We know all about the Yellow Vest. And those movements were far smaller with a much shorter history. Hell, we even know about QAnon. So why don't we know more about La Via Campesina if it is such a huge movement? That's a great question. Um, and I guess, you know, um, it's part of, uh, so the article I wrote that were, you invited me to talk about, published in Roar, it's kind of part of a larger, um, my larger area of work, um, which is around transnational social movements, but specifically also looking at, at how movements are connected to, to you know, movements such as La Via Campesina and the importance that many scholars have actually written about um, of Global South-led so-called peasant movements. I would argue that why we haven't heard about it does have to do with, um, you know, uh, hegemony <laughs> and uh, the fact that I think um, it is it continues to be a problem even as we have all of this access to media and so like Livia Campesina, you know, they have their own website, which I encourage people to go take a look at. Amabi has their own website also with uh, pieces translated into into Spanish. 
um, and English, but I think that those, it, it, people are fighting and, and speaking and articulating their fight, and it doesn't kind of trickle into the center of the empire, um, is, is my own analysis of it. Um, and I think that that's part of why I think it is important, and what I see my specific role is to be able to, to kind of amplify that fight and say, hey, like this exists, we should be paying attention to it. Um, you know, La Via Campesina does have some members, I think just a few, but who are, and I think principally like immigrant-led movements in, in the U.S. that are actually a part of this transnational social movement. But as you say, we don't really hear much about it. And so I think that's an excellent question that I don't have a great answer to, um, except to say that, you know, it's um, maybe also speaks to kind of even with many more so-called left-leaning news sources, we don't really have media in, in the U.S. And that I would argue really has a very, like, critical, true leftist analysis um, in any sort of popular platform. Don't sell yourself short. That was a very great answer. I like that answer. You write, uh, Mobby focuses its fights on six interconnected areas, human rights, energy, water, dams, the Amazon, and international solidarity. The movement organizes for tangible policy and system-level changes and actively creates an alternative to capitalist globalization. I keep hearing people still looking for an alternative to capitalist globalization, like it one does not exist yet. So has the movement come up with that alternative to capitalist globalization, or are they still in the experimenting stages of a revolution, if you will? What, what, is, what, is, what is the state that they are in when it comes to finding that alternative to capitalist globalization? Yeah, another great question. Um, so... I think, and, and I have explored this more in some other other writing, but what I argue, so Mavi talks about a, a novu camino, or a new path, a new way, right? And so part of what I see being articulated in their struggle, but it is also, as they are connected to, as we've talked about, La Via Campesina, but, and that also connected to MST and to other um, popular social movements in Brazil and across Latin America and across the world, actually, and I think that so part of that articula articulation of an alternative to capitalism is this vision for a future, a future without where, where our world isn't structured around around capitalism. But part of it is also living it in the moment, and so it's how how people are um, engaging with each other and building the struggle and building community every single day. And so has it been realized? Well, no, not fully, but I think it um, it goes back to maybe a, a is it an Arundhati Roy quote of um, another world is not only possible, she's already on her way. I might be getting that quote slightly wrong, but I think it's part of the struggle is, right, it's living into it. It's every day. It's imagining that our world could be different. It's believing that despite everything that tells us it can't happen and it's fighting for it every day. And one of the most powerful, beautiful things truly that I have learned from Mabi is also the importance of solidarity and of international solidarity and of, and of understanding that yes, someone's struggle who lives in the U S is different from, from, you know, someone impacted by the dam collapse in Brazil. But at the same time, we also, we, we are, as they say, 
todos somos atendidos, we are all affected. And understanding that to create this different world, we, this, this has to be a collective fight. And kind of the care and love and attention to building that every single day. Um, so I, that would be my answer. You also write that in Brazil, the logic of profit has dispossessed people of their sovereignty, their wealth, and their water, the very essence of life. The massive dams Vale uses in its mining operations privatize and pollute water used by thousands of people. So with no sovereignty, wealth, or water, that does not sound like people living in what one might call, and the Brazilian government and its patriotic supporters may argue is a democracy. What kind of governance do you think best describes the one experienced when you have no sovereignty, no wealth, no power, all because of privatization and corporate private interest control? Because this sounds like, you know, turn of the century American company towns. Is, is Brazil essentially little pockets that are company towns controlled by corporations? Well, I think that that is both a simple and a complicated question. So, you know, what I'm thinking about actually is how um, we can find plenty of examples in the U.S. where people don't have access to, to drinking water, where people are dying of high rates of cancer because of corporate pollution, right? Um, and so I would argue that it isn't even within the U.S., even as it's less visible, um, those sort of dynamics still exist today. At the same time, it's also true that because of laws and regulations that some corporations that are based in the U.S. have, have taken their exploitation elsewhere. Um, you know, from my perspective, I, I don't really think, I don't think in the United States we have a true democracy. And so I think when you mention the word democracy, like that gets very, like, what do we mean? That's a very kind of, that gets very complicated. Um, but ultimately what I think is that whether you're in the U.S. or in Brazil or anywhere else, um, people are organizing and fighting. Um, and, and I think that that does represent a struggle for grassroots democracy. It does represent a struggle against corporate profit. Um, and, you know, the situation in Brazil right now is, is very, very difficult. Um, you know, not even we're talking about all the, the mining realities um, and environmental devastation. And then there's just the horror of the COVID pandemic that has taken nearly now 500,000 lives in Brazil. Um, and again, I think, right, that's, it's because pro the logic of profit is being put ahead of the logic that for, for life. And I think that that is something that's happening that's a global problem. We can't look at these processes as just, well, it's just specific to one, one state. Um, and so I think, again, like, I'm not sure that that is a directly answers your question, but I think what I would ultimately say is that I think this has to be like uh, a wake up call for all of us, right? That all of these problems that are happening, whether it's in, Environmental devastation from a, a corporation, um, you know, the, the fact that we don't have, that there's a patent, that there's patents on the COVID vaccine so people can't access uh, the, the vaccine, right? All of these things are because of our global economic system. Um, and I think it's really important that we start to think about and analyze it from that perspective and think about how 
how are we doing, you know, the, the power, how are we going to build people power on a, a local, a national, and international level to say, no, enough, like life should be ahead of profit. You write that there are more than 100,000 Atinguidos affected people in the region, but people do not know what is going to happen or when emergency aid will ever come. This is in the area that was devastated by the dam collapse, killing 272 people. Further, government negotiations with Valet for reparations were conducted without the participation of Atinguidos. On February 4th, 2021, the Brazilian government and Valet reached an accord. Nearly $7 billion U.S. dollars was awarded to the state of Minas Gerais, where this was taking place, making it the largest settlement in Brazil's history, along with murder charges for company officials. First, Caitlin, how far can $7 billion go toward making Minas Gerais a, a livable place again? And secondly, I, I mean, how unprecedented is this holding co- uh, corporate executives for uh, charges of murder, because this is something that a lot of climate change activists have been hoping for for a very long time, that you could actually bring criminal charges against uh, planetary devastating companies. So uh, my first question is, how far can $7 billion go? And my second is, is anybody going to actually be held accountable for murder? Right. So, and I think I I note this in the article, from the perspective of Mabby, that settlement is not is not legitimate. And so, you know, like the New York Times, um, I think it actually was the front page, um, but, you know, had had this, you know, the $7 billion was awarded, this is the largest settlement in Brazil's history, this is a victory. And I think on the one hand, it does, like, it is, I think, important that, that something happened. Um, but again, the problem is that that accord was made without the participation of the people most impacted. Um, that money, from the perspective of, of Mobby um, and other people on the ground, that money is not going to go to the people most impacted. Um, you know, people continue are, are, are left out of that settlement. I think, and then then there's just a question of can money, is, can any amount of money um, actually provide true reparations for displacing people from their homeland and destroying their way of life? And I think the answer in short is no, it can't, um, but something needs to be done. And so at the minimum, right, there, that those impacted should have a voice and a say in, in what the reparations are. The money should go to them. Um, and again, unfortunately, it seems that that is not what has happened. In terms of will people actually be, you know, held held accountable? Um, maybe, you know, I think one of the, the possibilities is that a few people, you know, it's picking a few people to hold accountable, um, which, again, it's, it's a step in the right direction, but it doesn't really get at the root of the problem that this is a whole, like, the corporation is going to continue to exist. Other corporations doing the same thing are going to continue to exist. What about the fact that, um, just to name one, because I think it's a, a fami- more familiar name, BlackRock Capital owns like 5% of shares in Valet, but we know it's, it's almost impossible to hold um, like in, investment companies like that accountable because there isn't one like person you can target. So, uh, you know, it gets, 
it's a it's a complicated answer, but ultimately I feel it's important to just reiterate the point that from the perspective of Mobby, that $7 billion accord isn't really a victory. And you're right that Mobby commemorated the second anniversary of Bermudinho, the dam collapse, this past January with various symbolic actions. In one such event, people tossed 11 roses into the water to honor the 11 people who have still not been found with additional petals to honor the river that has been killed by the mining company. They also organized various virtual actions since the pandemic precluded an in-person convergence like the one held the year before. So why do the mining disasters, why do they bring all these movements together? Why is there common ground between all of these different varied movements that you point out, uh, especially when it comes to the victimization of uh, and the exploitation of the marginalized? Why do you think mining brings all of these different movements together? Well, I think that we could, you know, find other examples like right now, um, another thing that's bringing movements together is trying to fight against defunding the public health system um, or calling for the impeachment of Bolsonaro. That's also bringing different movements together. I think that something that I see um, is more that that in Brazil there is more of a capacity to build multi-sector fights than what we have here in the U.S for example. I think in the case of the commemoration, you know, for Bruno Gino, um, I mean, 272, and, and I just want to note, um, I'm using that number because it's what Mabi uses because two of the people lost were pregnant, so they're counting in as 272, but some news outlets have reported it as 270, but that's an enormous loss of life. Of people, I mean, buried alive it, it, under mud, like, it's horrific, right? And so I think it's it, and, and there is this very clear, like, ballet that has a track record of other um, accidents or crimes. Um, and so it is, it is a, a mobilizing, kind of unifying moment. Um, but I think part of what makes it also possible to bring different struggles together is that you can't actually talk about water sovereignty without talking about land you know, sovereignty, right? Because if it, when a dam is built and it floods and displaces people from their home or when a dam collapses and it turns to mud, which that has significant repercussions for, for agriculture, right, for fishing. And so all of, all of these, you can't think about land without thinking about water. You can't think about the right to water without also thinking about the right to health um, or education. And so in that sense, there is this analysis that all oppression, all exploitation is connected and is coming from the same, the same root cause. And that same root cause is? I mean, it's capitalism and also how patriarchy and, and racism um, operate, with, you know, and are part of capitalism. So you also point out that in the past five years, the number of Brazilians experiencing hunger has grown to nearly 37%. I want to make sure people understand the direct impact of mining and these extractive industries on Brazilian people when it, when it comes to you know actually feeding themselves. The COVID-19 crisis, you continue, has only worsened the reality. In August 2020, Bolsonaro vetoed a bill that would have granted emergency assistance to family farmers. 
So how much mm-hmm. is a lack of local water sovereignty and infrastructure of dams to facilitate destructive mining contributing to that growth in hunger across Brazil? Is water sovereignty, a lack of water sovereignty, leading to Brazilians going hungry? Well, I, I think that uh, as um, Mobby talks about, right, it's, it's a, that water and energy are not commodities. That's what they say, right? Because you, because dams are, I mean, that's energy, um, but you can't think about the two separately. Um, and there is an analysis that, like, the, the price of energy is, is theft. <laughs> uh, people can't afford it. And so I think, again, it's going back to this point that, like, yes, this is a fight for water sovereignty, and it is about water, and it is about dams. But it's a about a larger struggle, which is for popular control and sovereignty over resources, and that includes all resources. So we can't think about the fight for water as separate from the fight for land sovereignty, as separate from the fight that, you know, um, electricity and, and um, gas and petroleum, that those things should not be privatized, that they should be in, con- in control of the people. Same for the the public health care system. And so there is a current government um, that is seeking to further privatize, deregulate, um, and just extract extract all of these resources from Brazil because there's all kinds of minerals, right? Not just iron. I mean, bauxite, and the list goes on, gold. Um, and none, for none of that wealth to, to benefit um, the people. One last question for you, Caitlin. We've been speaking with sociologist Caitlin Schroering, who wrote the Roar magazine article Inside the Struggle for Water Sovereignty in Brazil. Brazil's movement of people affected by dams or mobby has been fighting for decades against the privatization of water and for popular control over natural resources. One last question for you, Caitlin. And as we do with all of our guests, our final question is the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, or our audience is going to hate your response. One of the things that I really appreciated about your writing, about the points that you were making today, is how Mobby, how MST, how uh, La Via Campesina, all these organizations have an international, have a universal focus. And that's something that I think really is lacking here in the United States. The old phrase is that the American left is more American than left. In your opinion, why is the American left more American than left? Why can't the American left see beyond borders? Ah, well, easy question to finish off with. Um, you know, I think that, I, I do think that the United States, we are very individualistic and have a very, like, we don't have a great sense of the collective. Um, and I think that that becomes harder than to think about the importance of collective struggles. And I also think sitting in the center, I mean, I think we're a failing hegemon, but still sitting in the center of the empire, um, it's harder to, to, see, um, to see that this system isn't working, right? And there has also been a concerted effort, of course, um, to push, including to push labor, right, farther and farther to the right. And so now what we call the last is really the center. And so I think it's a combination that there's been a concerted intentional effort on the part of um, 
those in power, to put it that way, right, to push us further to the right, we also have this very individualized kind of ethic that makes it harder to see the collective. Um, and I think, you know, it's also, I also think our education system certainly plays a role. Like, we're not really taught all the the true horrors that have happened in our in our country, right? There's this myth that this is land land of the free, home of the brave, when it's a, a country built on racial capitalism that was from its founding, absolutely not for all, but we still like, especially I think for white middle-class people, um, it becomes incredibly hard to, to understand just how exploitative this system is. Um, so I guess, you know, I think that there is a lot that we can learn from struggles like La Via Campesina, from struggles like Mobi. Um, and I hope that we can we can begin, and I think we are. There's little it was shifting every day. I hope um, to understand how the struggles interconnected, to un- understand how we don't really have a leftist movement here in the U.S., um, and that to really build one, we, there has to be there has to be solidarity, and there has to be solidarity on a global scale. Caitlin, another great answer. Thank you very much for being on our show this week. This is, I'm so glad that we're getting back to finding out what is happening with the workers' movements within Brazil. We were covering this back in the early 2000s, late 1990s, and I'm so glad that we were able to touch on this aspect of what's been happening in Brazil lately. We have a, a correspondent, a contributor, Brian Muir, who works for Telesur English, and he usually focuses on what's happening with Lula, with Dilma, with Bolsonaro, so I'm glad that we were actually able to get to the workers' movement. Thank you so much for being on our show today. Thanks so much for having me. If you like what you just heard, please show your support for completely listener-supported This Is Hell by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support to see all the ways you can contribute to This Is Hell, including all of our merchandise, our trucker cap, our winter beanie, our camp camping mug, our tote bag, our t-shirts, our flash drive that's a history of the 21st century in interviews that we've done here on This Is Hell. You can find all that stuff and you can subscribe to our Patreon podcast. Just go to thisishell.com and click on support. Keeping it real. Real deep in debt since 1996. This Is Hell. If you want to help us climb out of that debt, please subscribe to tomorrow's Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash thisishell, which is going to be streaming live at 10 a.m. and is podcast at the same place shortly after. On this week's Patreon podcast, we got an email earlier this week from Rue in Glasgow who suggested we have Apth Co. as a guest on the show. And when I did a quick search on Apth, I found a couple interviews with the titles Apth Co. and the first two items that popped up were interviews with Apth on racism as zoological witchcraft and another on speciesism as an extension of white supremacy. Rue then wrote, I'd be real interested to hear how Chuck's style of interviewing helps to get the most out of her time on air. So on tomorrow's Patreon podcast, I will do my best to explain and reveal my style of interviewing that really does not have much style at all. But if you want to have a better understanding of why I ask the questions I ask, tune into tomorrow's Patreon podcast to find out. 10 a.m. Chicago time, Friday mornings, patreon.com slash this is hell. Meanwhile, because of today's discussion with Caitlin Schroering, We're sharing three interviews we did. Not one, not two, but three interviews we did back in 2003 and 2004 with Eric Leanson, 
founder of the Friends of the MST, the Landless Workers Movement of Brazil, which you can find out about at mstbrazil.org. It's also a great place to find news about Brazil. Yep, way back in the early aughts, we were covering the Landless People's Movement, which has continued to grow and has become the massive uprising it is today, with currently over a million people in Brazil engaged in land conflicts. So tomorrow on Patreon at This Is Hell, or on the Patreon podcast of This Is Hell, I will reveal what my interviewing style, which is not all that stylish, is all about, and we'll play three interviews from the early 2000s on the Landless People's Movement in Brazil, but you can only hear that by subscribing on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell. In a few minutes, Jeff Dorchin will be delivering a moment of truth during this week's moment. Jeff takes us to inspect the foundation of the House of Bad Opinions. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed host, Chuck Mertz, producing is Alex Jerry. Alex, please remind us what is this week's question from and tell us how our listeners are responding. What is leaking out of your lab? What is leaking out of your lab? Pete V says, sciencey things. <laughs> Joel G says, lumpy gravy. And George P says, the dulcet tones of Chuck Mertz. What is leaking out of your lab? Tom G says, genetically modified mosquitoes that deliver a little shot of methadone in exchange for your blood. Tynan S says, adorable animals, all of whom I liberated from their de- uh, detestable corporate wardens as part of an elaborate photogenic PR stunt designed to draw attention to inhumane product testing, but I forgot to rescue the ugly ones. <laughs> what is leaking out of your lab? What is leaking out of your lab? Stephen D says, salty discharge. Disgusting. David R says, existential dread. Ronaldo M says, pasta visual. Ugh. What is leaking out of your lab? A few more. Braden S says, clouds of weed smoke and dope beats. Andrew S says, imperialist propaganda. Martin F says, Captain Trips. And via email, Adam B says, that sauce that comes with the dumplings. We'll have more of your answers to this week's question from hell following Jeff Dorchin in the moment of truth. Keep in mind, a lot of the questions I asked this week, make that all of the questions I asked this week were written while I was high, this is Helen. I know you have Jeffy on the line. You know what to do. One more time. I'm a spy in the house of bad opinions. Welcome to the moment of truth, the thirst that is a drink. What makes great masses of people believe the same stupid or magical or xenophobic or elitist narrative? What made Emperor Constantine decriminalize Christianity and eventually elevate it to the state religion of the Roman Empire? And what made people go along with that? What made people agree on currency? What makes people agree on cryptocurrency? What makes so many people agree on the greatness of certain art or certain food? Well, certain food is objectively delicious, but still, at the root of this question might be, how do people come to believe strongly, vehemently, even violently, opinions having no other value than the value the believers assign to them? Then again, what other value do opinions have? Well, a medically trained doctor's opinion of why, say, you aren't capable of speaking above a whisper might have more value to you than that of someone who's just tossing out guesses because of the training and expertise of the one compared with the lack of them of the other. 
but you might not like the doctor's opinion because it has implications that require you to have polyps removed from your vocal cords, whereas the know-nothing opinion might only require you to eat chicken soup or suck on a slippery elm lozenge. So still, although you have your reasons, no specific property of the opinions other than your own judgment would make you choose one or the other. The medical one may be correct or better reflect your physical condition, but you could still ignore it indefinitely if you were attached to the other opinion for some cowardly or superstitious reason. I recently learned a little about the St. Francis Dam disaster, a fiasco made possible by the water wars of the late 1920s and 1930s, which Robert Town and Roman Polanski used as a MacGuffin to build their Chinatown on. The details would be better told as one of Ronaldo's rotten histories than by me, he may have already done so, I don't know, because there's no way to search for just the rotten histories. I'm not trying to create more work for the archivists, I'm just saying. I'll just be giving you the broad, choppy strokes. Bureau of Waterworks Manager and Chief Engineer William Mulholland, who would go on to have a drive through the Hollywood Hills named after him, wanted to be a big hero so that he could eventually have a David Lynch lesbian rom-com gone wrong named after his winding road. So he had a huge dam built and redirected the Owens River away from the Owens River Valley and its farms into an enormous reservoir. The dam needed to be higher than he at first thought because of all the water that needed to be stolen, so they built it higher, but Mulholland, like a doofus, neglected to increase the size of the foundation. Oh, speaking of lesbian romantic comedy gone wrong, I guess having to turn a whole season of your funny show over to maudlin lesbians is the appropriate punishment for thinking you might have sex on a date in your apartment. Just kidding. Good for you, disease, I'm sorry. I'm sure your friend and her lover's semi-autobiographical story of struggle, sorrow, joy, and commitment is just the thing to breathe new life into the comatose world of situation comedy. It's a gag worthy of Andy Kaufman in the years when he traveled with his fake family of evangelical Christian hymn singers. <clears throat> but back to the topic at hand. Long and the short of it, or... Rather, just the short of it, at two and a half minutes to midnight on March 12, 1928, the St. Francis Dam collapsed, sending 12 and a half billion gallons of water smashing through farms and towns, rolling for 65 miles to the sea, flattening everything in its path. 400 to 600 people were killed, and even the higher number is probably low because of all the undocumented laborers and their families who were also wiped out. Mulholland had a vision, and it was a case of build it and they will come, or rather build it and everyone will believe it was necessary because who would go to the immense costly lengths of stealing 12.5 billion gallons of water from an entire valley if it wasn't necessary? Somehow the bigger and more audacious the lie and the more resources it takes to commit whatever crimes demanded by the lie, the stronger the allegiance to it by congenital suckers, 
we see passionate attachment to opinions that run counter to historical documentation, empirical evidence, common sense, and our own lived experience more and more often, it seems, accepted by more of the public, trumpeted more loudly, having greater influence on our collective activities and thus steering our collective destiny as a species ever closer to extinction. Or maybe that's just my opinion. And Lord knows I'm no expert on anything, so why would anyone pay attention to my opinion? But I guess I'm just as good a fool as any in today's marketplace of dumb opinions. In the foregoing description... We build our image of what the world is with our opinions, and some building materials are more stable than others. The more closely we adhere to accurate observation and the counsel of the learned and experienced, the less likely we are to wake up being carried out to the ocean by a 75-foot flood wave. What happens when 25 to 30% of U.S. society has built their world out of the lousiest stuff imaginable? A house of cards can at least be glued and taped together to extend its questionable structural integrity. A house of pancakes will at least leave you something buttery and sweet to eat after it's collapsed on you. But a dam holding back a grotesque amount of stolen life necessities built on the delusions of a megalomaniac will sweep us all into the ocean, and on the way out to sea we'll be smashed by huge chunks of the faulty structure or ripped to pieces by jagged flotsam and the antlers and horns of dead deer and antelope. This ain't no house of pancakes. We're swimming in the reservoir or strolling on top of the overburdened dam. And even though many, many of us are constantly warning that the foundation is rotten, there's not a lot that can be done because the edifice is built on ages of bad opinions and was constructed long before we got here. And maybe it's not too late to switch to pancakes as we build the Tower of Doom higher from now on. I don't know. What do you think? This has been the moment of truth. Good day. I was in the Twin Cities of Bloomington, Normal, Illinois last weekend, and there is at the intersection of Veterans Highway, and I believe it's Clinton. I can't remember now. Uh, there's like a homemade sign like next to the signs that say Subway this way, Wendy's this way, Culver's this way. Then there's this homemade sign for a restaurant that has been around for a very, very long time, and it's called Uncle Tom's Pancake House. Uh, wow. <laughs> Wait, you mean Aunt Jemima and Uncle Tom are like in cahoots? Where, where, where is this? In Blue, normal, in it, normal Illinois. Of course, oh. it's in normal Illinois where they normalize <laughs> all sorts of horrible, horrible things. Uncle Tom's Pancake House. And I still haven't had a chance to look it up because I want to check out their menu. Did they have a, an illustration of a happy-go-lucky fellow with a chef's hat on or something? I certainly hope not. I certainly. <laughs> Remember Sambo's? <laughs> oh, yeah. That's why it actually came up because uh, Laura's sister actually worked at a Sambo's. Oh, man. Wow. <laughs> Wow. Not Being for very inside long. Inside a Sambo's. Have you ever looked up the, so the final Sambo's shut down, I think in 2019, maybe it was 2020. Look up that menu. Uh, oh, are they are they cleverly named? Oh I'm yes, afraid. there's a lot, oh. of, and, and it comes with a dog whistle. It's the best part of the menu. Incredible. It's a, it's it's crazy that they need one. They should have a trumpet. <laughs> exactly. Hey, 
Yeah. Um, did you see the Redamax uh, bite into a legend sign anywhere as you were traveling along? <laughs> no, but those used to be around there. Oh, new around New Buffalo, but I don't know if they're there anymore. <laughs> uh, they are, or I don't know. I, yeah. I I downloaded a bunch of photographs of the sign for various usage, but uh, so I think they're still they're still operating. I've never been there, <laughs> but you have. I always thought it was signs. a pie. I always thought it was a pie that the guy was eating. Well, it's so monstrously bizarre. It's like the it's like the the, the dental sign that they copied uh, Alfred E. Newman from. Oh, right. <laughs> it just looks like this weird. Like, what is that? Is that an ape eating a pie? It's a bizarre thing. Yeah, it doesn't really make sense. Jeffy. No. Yeah. Until next time. What? Stay beautiful. Ooh, okay. Live from land stolen from the Potawatomi people. This is hell. This week's question from hell is, what's leaking out of your lab? The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell gets whatever piece of This Is Hell merchandise they choose. Remember, you can see all of the stuff that we can, well, that all the ways in which you can support completely listener-supported This Is Hell by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. You can still leave your... Answer to this week's question mail at our Facebook page. Tweet it to us. Email it to us. But we have to have your answer in now. Alex, please share with us the rest of our listeners' answers to this week's question from hell. Uh, what is leaking out of your lab? What is leaking out of your lab? I love how you hit what on that. That's really great. Uh, that, I was a little con- uh, little distracted because I'm also looking at a Tom's Pancake House over here. <laughs> is, there, is there a menu? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh. Uh, Zach Tomato Millionaire says everyone is sweating this question trying to admit to stealing from work without publicly admitting to embezzlement. <laughs> Marks P says definitely not CIA designed SARS strain. <laughs> Occult FTN says reanimator juice for my dead hopes in politics. <laughs> what is leaking out of your lab? Two Thrones says your mom. <laughs> Jokes on you, your uh, Two Thrones there. Someone got to that two days ago. <laughs> uh, Michael D says Mila Jovovich again and again and again. Oh, gross. Hypocrite Reader says, delicious juices. What is leaking out of your lab? What is leaking out of your lab? Ursula W. says, let's just say it's golden and I don't plan on retrieving it. (laughs) And finally, ATM says, anytime I hear leaks, I just think of Vichy Swaz. Must be a nice problem to have over there. (laughs) All right. The answers I like the most to this week's question, Mal, what is leaking out of your lab? I like David saying existential dread. Neil saying the thrill of just giving up. I like Laddie's hermetically sealed, individually wrapped night terrors. Victor saying the joy of living. Sean saying self-worth. Alex, do you have any that really stick out to you that you like? I'll defer to you on this one. I'm going to go with existential dread. David, you are the winner of this week's question from hell. All you have to do is send us a message via Facebook or email us or tweet at us and tell us which piece of This Is Hell merchandise you want. That you can find all of our merchandise right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. We have t-shirts, we have hats, we have caps, we have cups, we have flash drives and tote bags, all far too much stuff. My answer to this week's question from hell, what is leaking out of your lab, if this is hell is the experiment and the studio is the lab then what is leaking out of our lab is apparently not that much we presumably run a very tight lab 
we wish that whatever we have learned here on This Is Hell, whatever knowledge we've shared on the show, would in fact spread like a virus infecting people with our guests' views, especially those related to climate change and capitalism's roles in creating and spreading the pandemic. But unfortunately, we have a very safe and secure lab. Thanks to everyone for sending in your answers to this week's question from hell. Alex, do we have anyone scheduled yet for next week's set of shows? Yeah, I got three of them. Sweet. So uh, on Monday, Gabriel Winant will be on to talk about his new book, The Next Shift, The Fall of Industry and the Rise of Healthcare in Rust Belt America. Sweet. Then on Tuesday, historian Carol Anderson is going to be back on and Chuck loved that interview with her oh my last God. time. So yeah. she's going to be back on to talk about her book, The Second Race and Guns in a Fatally Unequal America. Uh, working on Wednesday and then third. Oh, damn. I think I've closed this tab so I can look up Uncle Tom's pancakes. <laughs> okay, so on Thursday, uh, Brian Justy will be on to talk about his Logic Magazine piece, The Non Machinables Redundancy and Resilience at the U.S. Postal Service. I think a lot of listeners, we have a lot of postal worker listeners to the show. So yes, we do. And a lot hang out downstairs at the bar as so well. So I want to hear back uh, from people about that one. That's on Thursday. And a moment of truth from Jeff. So uh, anything on the Uncle Tom's menu really stick out to you there, Alex? The, they have a Their mascot is a pancake, which is probably better than what you might have expected. But also their menu just Still. says, but I also, I'm also just seeing it listed as just Tom's Pancake House and Restaurant. Really? Uh, not their URL, but that might be harder to change than the sign. So I think they might be... Uh, stealthily uh, deproblematizing themselves so they don't get yalled. Oh, I don't know, man. I saw their ad in newspapers. <laughs> I saw their ad in tourism guides. That's some pretty scary business. Oh, they do have something called the gypsy skillet. So uh, no, they, we, A lot we, of people and, have that, although that, I really? find that offensive and the, <laughs> myself. And the, there's a gypsy skillet and a hobo skillet. <laughs> so I think uh, change has yet to come to maybe the skillet <laughs> forefront of uh, diner, greasy diner places. Uh, at least it's not called the dirty gypsy skillet, which is how I was introduced to that phrase of my grandmother speaking that dirty gypsy language. We start every week's live streaming shows here at thisishell.com by revealing this week's hangover cure. And this week's hangover cure is bread. Lots and lots and lots of bread. Thanks to this week's guests, including Max Isle, author of A People's Green New Deal. Follow Max on Twitter. At Max Isle, that's A-J-L. Thanks to yesterday's guest, legal scholar Madison Condon, who wrote the Boston Review article, Climate Change's New Ally, Big Finance. Thanks to Tynan and Erica for suggesting that topic and Madison as a guest. You can follow Madison on Twitter at Madison E. Condon. And thanks to today's guest, sociologist Caitlin Schroering, who wrote the Roar Magazine article, Inside the Struggle for Water Sovereignty in Brazil. Thanks to Alexander Jerry for producing. Thanks to Richard Norwood and Negan Sheely for running the board this week as well. Thanks to Jeff Dorchin for another moment of truth and Ronaldo Magaldi for this week in Rotten History. And special thanks to Theron Humiston because... Talk to you tomorrow on Patreon at patreon.com slash this is how when we will be revealing my interviewing style finally and we'll be sharing three interviews we did in 2003 and 2004 with Eric Leanson, founder of the Friends of the MST, the Landless Workers Movements of Brazil, which you can find out more about at mstbrazil.org. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show, podcast, live streaming host, Chuck Mertz, producing Today's show is Alex Jerry. There's only one way to get over all the problems that we've introduced to you on this week's set of shows, and that's by sitting down in the lotus position, turning your palms towards the sky, focusing on that burning white dot in the middle of your forehead, and saying the simple words, Everybody's stupid. 
My demon is on my butt. <laughs> my demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. <laughs>